0: Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, Denver's very kind. Um, he's uh, when I started at seminary. As some of you know, I, my first semester at TMS was Denver's last. My first encounter was Denver. Was Denver? Was him walking down the corridor of the tower building, and I saw these final semester students walking past, and uh, we were just like, Morumanir, <laughs> Morumanir you so awed at these guys who are just about done, and uh, and he was one of them. And then I heard him preach, and um, um, since then I've been heavily intimidated by by Daniel's preaching. He's a gift to you guys, uh, he's a gift to the church. And uh, it's not for nothing that he won a very prestigious preaching award. And um, it's been my privilege to be his friend and to have him... And Gano and their boys as our friends. We've had the privilege of spending time with them, and getting to know them, and we love them. But I feel like I know all of you. Um, since I first met Denver, I've heard about Living Hope Bible Church in Cape Town, and I have, he's bragged about you a lot. He boasts about the love of Christ that emanates from this body of people, and I've, it's been such a joy for me to get the privilege to come here today and to share God's word with you. So thank you to, to Denver and to Don and um, all the elders for the invite. Um, Tanya and I come from Pretoria. We basically got married, grew up in Middleburg in Mapumalanga. Um, I forgot, actually, I brought it with. I was going to wear my blue bull uh, scarf this morning. Um, LAUGHTER um, but I decided I, I forgot it, actually. So maybe thankfully so. But um, it uh, it really is. Uh, we, we moved to Pretoria ahead of going to the U.S. And in the U.S. at seminary, I got involved with Pastor Carl Hargrove. He came the end of 2019. He did a big tour all over Africa and in Madagascar. And uh, he just came back to the u.s. with such a deep desire to to minister to africa and uh, for those of you who know grace community church uh, where the seminary is at uh, master seminary they have a ministry called grace advance Uh, grace advance is primarily involved in church strengthening and church revitalization um, helping pastors plant churches uh, but primarily, that was in North America and Canada. That's the Ministry of Grace Advance. And he came back. He's the, he's the head of Grace Advance. And um, he came back to the U.S. and he called me aside and he said, we've got to do something about Africa. He's got this desire to extend the Ministry of Grace Advance into Africa. And what emanated from that was a ministry called Africa Revitalization Center. It was initially called the Resource Center, as Denver said, but that name had already been taken in South Africa, so we had to make a modification. But the heart is the same. We want to strengthen churches, help with church plants, help with training of leaders, help with training of pastors, training of men. Uh, Africa needs men. Africa needs the Word of God to be preached in fullness. And so it's a broad scope that we want to do, and certainly when I come back to South Africa from the U.S., that will be the primary drive, would be ARC. Um, I do come with greetings from the church in Johannesburg, where we're involved in, while we're here, it's called Living Stone Bible Church, maybe some of you know Pastor Jonathan Clemick he planted the church in February this year, and they're also growing steadily in the midst of the challenges of COVID. So it's refreshing for me to stand here and see faces and smiles because in Gauteng there's no one smiling and there's, everyone's behind a mask and it's pretty serious at the moment. It's, it's got quite bad there but I come with greetings in the name of Christ to all of you from the church in four ways. Um, so as I said it really is my joy to be here and to open up God's word this morning. And I just realized now that I'm still on the last message here. So, the other thing, I need to start my... If you had to sum up the last 18 months into one word, what would it be? you ever thought about that try and sum up a whole year or 18 months in one or two words so and when I thought about it there's quite a few that come to my mind COVID obviously probably at the top of that list um, pandemics lockdowns travel bans load shedding I don't know if you guys in Cape Town have load shedding but we have a lot of it uh, up in Gauteng Um Perhaps that's two words, but it means one thing. So um, on a positive note, there's a lot that's been going on in churches all over. We've seen churches grow during the pandemic. Um, In this church, I know, speaking to Denver, perhaps a way to sum up in one word or two words is church growth. Just in the last 18 months, this church has grown. Maybe even baptisms, more prevalent to you guys, And I think everyone sitting here can think of both positive and negative words to sum up the last 18 months. But I think for me, if I have to top the list with one word that would describe the year 2020 going into 21, would probably be the word division. Division. Certainly, in my lifetime, I cannot remember a time in history where every facet of life, everything we experience in life is fractured to such a great extent, divided on every front. Societies are divided along racial lines. Societies are divided along political lines, along sexual identity lines, gender lines, political lines, religious lines, economic lines. And disunity and hatred for each other in those contexts abound. Sadly, even in the church, this is true. Apart from the lines of division that I've already mentioned to you, churches are heavily divided. They're divided on issues of doctrine. I know the issue is quite hot at the moment, especially in the, in the um, uh, Southern Baptist Convention in America, where the issue of women pastors and women preachers is quite a, 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 division, a topic of division how to deal with the whole LGBTQ agenda in the church is a hotly divided topic. Last year, with the start of COVID, we saw division in churches explode all over the show. Uh, People were divided over whether or not to wear masks. People were divided in the church over whether churches must be open or whether churches must be closed. And if open whether they must be indoors or outdoors. There's division in the church today, especially on whether churches must obey the government or not, whether to remain open when told to close. And we've seen the effects of what's going on in this arena in Canada, where some churches have opposed the government and had their pastors jailed. I don't think that kind of thing is too far off in this country. But the result of all this division in the church is that many are leaving one church and moving to another that says what they want to hear. And in some cases even, many are leaving church altogether and saying, I don't want to go anymore. Many have stopped attending the fellowship of believers and the incredible blessing of being together as the church. And it's to this end, this morning that Psalm 133 speaks to us. Psalm 133 presents you as the church with three great sureties of the blessing of covenant fellowship, three great sureties that will help you to stand firm in your faith and the fellowship of believers during these incredibly divisive times. And these three sureties we're going to look at this morning in verse 1, the prize of unity. In verse 2 and the first part of verse 3 is the providence of unity. And then the last part of verse 3, the promise of unity. So turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 133 and we read together. A song of ascents of David. Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious oil upon the head, coming down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard. Coming down upon the edge of his robes, it is like the dew of Hermon. Coming down upon the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord commanded the blessing, life forever. May our Lord truly bless the reading and the study of his word this morning. Amen. Now, despite a lot of speculation among scholars as to the origin or the original setting of this psalm, it's relevant to us today because some of them believe that it may have come from a time that reflected the same kind of political upheaval as we Have today, the same kind of religious tension that existed in Palestine at that time between Israel and Judah when Hezekiah was trying to bring reform to the people. It could, however, also fit a time when the nation of Israel was being repopulated after the exile and a group of a remnant of people was now moving back to Jerusalem to worship as one nation at the temple. And certainly, if you look at the scripture, the reference to Mount Zion could indicate that. But nevertheless, this passage represents a vibrant unity as the people traveled together on their journey of faith to worship the Lord with a renewed vigor, a renewed unity, a renewed life. Other speculation about this passage is that perhaps David used this particular psalm in 2 Samuel 6 when the ark was being brought back to the city of Jerusalem. And the people were unified in celebration. They were singing. They were dancing. It says that King David was leaping and dancing before the Lord as they sang this song. Either way, we don't really know. But what we do know starts even in the title of this text. So let's look at that a little bit closer. As you'll notice, the title of the psalm, which actually in the Hebrew text forms part of the inspired text itself, um, says a song of a sense of David. Now the grammar in the Hebrew text indicates that this psalm was originally written by King David. And it was amongst those songs which were most likely sung by the pilgrims as they made their way up to Jerusalem. And they do this every time. They go up to celebrate all the different festivals in the city. Now it's interesting that it's called a song of ascent. As you know, the word ascent has a lot of meaning to us as Christians. It's a well-known word. It's a well-used word. It's used more than 1,800 times throughout the Bible. We know from the story of Jacob in Genesis 28, 12, it says that he had a dream and behold, a ladder was set on the earth with its top reaching to the heaven and behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it, going up and going down. In fact, this up and down motif is very common to the Bible. Apart from Jacob, if you look in the book of Jonah, we see him going down to Joppa. And from there he went down into the bottom of the ship. And then he went down into the sea after the sailors threw him overboard. And then he went down into the belly of the fish, only to be vomited up by the fish onto dry land from where he went up to Nineveh, according the instruction of the Lord. There are many of these examples in Scripture, but for us as believers, the word ascend has specific and very special relevance. We obviously know it's used in reference to Jesus going up to heaven to be seated at the right hand of God the Father. Luke twenty-four, fifty-one says that he parted from them and was carried up into heaven, he ascended into heaven. This same up and down motif is central to those who are saved and have eternal life today. Ephesians 4 verse 9 and 10 says this, now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself also, he who ascended far above the heavens so that he might fill all things. Incredible text. In the incarnation, Jesus came down from heaven, took on flesh in order that as a man he could suffer and die in order to make atonement for us. Thankfully for us, from the depths of the tomb, he arose, he came up out of the tomb and ascended into heaven to take his place in full glory at the right hand of God the Father. We are here today, friends, because of this up-down motif of God that played itself out for us and for our salvation. But what I want you to see here is quite critical because in the context of man... The down is always linked to sin, and the up is linked to restoration and to blessing. You've heard yourself, people will say, of someone that he is spiraling out of control. In his sin, he is spir- it's a downward spiral of sin. And then when you talk about somebody who's repented and confessed of their sin, it says that they've picked up their life, they've been restored, they've been saved. But in the context of God, in this text, the economy is totally different. And the reason for this is that in God there is no sin. There is never sin. Even though Jesus came down from heaven to earth to become a curse for us, this gracious and merciful act of God was the greatest blessing upon mankind ever. He came down to be a blessing and his ascension marked for us as believers the glorious fulfillment of victory over death. And here in Psalm 133, this up and down motif is very much at play. The idea of ascending or going up in the title is contrasted in the text by the idea of coming down. But I want you to notice as we go through this text from whose perspective the coming down is. Is it man's or is it God's? Now as we look at the text, we'll notice that three times the word coming down are used. When speaking of brothers dwelling together in unity, the psalmist says, it's like precious oil coming down upon the beard of even Aaron's beard. Coming down upon the edge of his robes. It's like the dew of Hermon coming down upon the mountains of Zion. Now the word coming down in Hebrew is yarad. And it's from this word that the Jordan River actually gets its name. And it's very fitting because the Jordan River actually starts way north in the northern regions of Palestine, which borders with Syria, and it sits at about 9,000 feet above sea level, or 3,000 feet meters above sea level where the Jordan River starts, and it runs all the way down the Jordan River Valley to the Dead Sea, which lies at about uh, probably around 400 meters below sea level. So just in the Jordan River itself, there's this incredible picture developed for us of this downward imagery But in this instance, it describes blessings and goodness as that which comes from above, which is coming down from God. And the imagery that it develops for us here, it shows us that true unity does not merely happen on the grounds of common belief or common faith or common interest or common experiences, but it's a supernatural blessing by the providence of God. And it's especially within the church that the Lord adds life through unity. We tend to think of unity purely on a horizontal level, how we relate to each other, as husband to wife or brother and sister or colleagues to each other. It's all on a horizontal plane. Even members of a church sort of... Connect on a horizontal level, but here we have this up and down motif, and the text points us to a vertical direction, and it gives us these three sureties, three guarantees that God's blessing comes from above upon his people in a wonderful way that brings life-giving unity, and that's what we're going to look at this morning, especially in the midst of these divisive times. So the first of these three sureties is the prize of unity. The prize of unity. Look at verse 1. It says, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together. So the first word there, behold, it's, it's something that's said to grab your attention and say, Look at this. Don't ignore this fact. It's the truth. Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. The sense of goodness and pleasantness here lies in the dwelling together. And still we're seeing the horizontal aspect of dwelling together. Now I know that the word brother is used often in this day and age, especially in church and especially at seminary. I'm often when I walk around there, I'm called brother. And I'm not always sure if that comes from the heart or whether they've just forgotten my name. <laughs> I know that I'm guilty of that same thing. If I don't know someone as, says, Hey, brother, good to see you again. Long time no see. And then I say, we we'll see again. Forgotten. We're all guilty of that. But here in Psalm 133, the reference to brothers reflects far more than just the idea of those who are... Of the same culture and those who have the same mind and of the same faith, or even the same church. It's used specifically in the context of siblings, that where there's a bond of blood that is far closer than just the normal type of relationship. It refers to a togetherness between people that is as strong as that of siblings. And it calls that kind of togetherness good and pleasant. But how about dwelling together? What does it look like to dwell together? One commentator said this in our quote. He said, in Psalm 133, this cultural reference to dwelling together is used to speak of people who were kin through Yahweh's covenant. Kin means family Sitting together at festival meals and dwelling together during a festival such as Tabernacles. The festival transformed the pilgrims into a family that for a holy time ate and dwelt together. And once again, there's this idea of a dwelling together that transcends normal relationships. In Bible times, this is exactly what would happen? Families and tribes would live together. They'd dwell together. They'd move together. They live in a general area for the sake of well-being of the family and even to ensure the future of the family. Deuteronomy 25.5 says that when brothers lived together and one was married and he died without having children, that his, his brothers would take his wife to be their wife to make sure that the family line continues. All throughout the Bible, we see families sticking together. But dwelling together is also a Hebrew expression used, for instance, in Judges 19.6, where it says that both of them sat down and ate and drank together. It's the same expression used for dwelling together, having a meal together. Even in Jeremiah 31:24, it refers to the Judahites and their restoration in the land together again. To live together with joyful emphasis upon their restoration. The issue is that dwelling together demonstrates a strong family-like bond, a family-like unity. The interesting thing to note that in the Hebrew text, the words in unity at the end of that verse don't exist. But the translators had to, had to add that to the, to the text in order to make you understand what type of togetherness they're talking about. It's a unity. And when it speaks of this united family-like relationship and togetherness, it's referred to here as good And as pleasant. So I ask you today is this your experience in whatever environment you find yourself in? Can you call the unity within all your uh, horizontal relationships to be good and to be pleasant? Do we see this type of family type uh, togetherness in the world today? The grammar in in Psalm 133 has another interesting uh, point or perspective to look at. And it indicates to us that yasav, the word for dwelling together, has a nuance of a long duration. So it's not just about getting together for a family reunion. As families... We love each other, we love being together, we love getting together for birthdays and for Christmas and all other things, but don't let us stay together for too long. I hear some giggles. Make us live together for a long time in a small area or working together, whatever the case may be, and the picture's not always the same. It doesn't always work out that well, does it? And we see it even in the Bible. Genesis 13 6. It speaks of Abraham and Lot. And it says the land could not sustain them while dwelling together for their possessions were so great that they were not able to remain together. But we know what happened is they started arguing. The one's servants started arguing with the other and eventually everybody was arguing and eventually they split up and went their separate ways. Circumstances, friends, do sometimes drive us apart being biological or even spiritual families does not guarantee a unity amongst us. We look at the tragic experiences of Cain and Abel and even Joseph and his brothers. We look at countless church splits and I was painfully aware of just more splits that happened just recently in churches. Church fights, family feuds, all of these bear witness To this fact. And the reality is that we are fallen men. But in contrast, when you look at Psalm 133, it speaks of a unity and a harmony that comes from dwelling together. And it exhibits this as a long lasting, good and pleasant unity. Something as delightful. This was a blessing from God. So the first surety we have from God is that unity is a prize from Him. It's a special blessing from Him. It's a togetherness that is blessed by Him, and it's good and it's pleasant. And then as we continue on in the psalm, the second surety that we have is that unity is a blessing which flows as providence from God. This is in verse two in the first part of verse three. It says, This unity is like precious oil upon the head, coming down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard coming down upon the edge of his robes. Now, in my previous career, I was a, a mine surveyor. I worked on, on the coal mines up in Mapumalanga. And um, well, the machines we used to use to load coal onto the trucks from within the open-cast pits was called excavators. They've got these big booms, articulated booms, and they've got a bucket in the front, and they'll dip down that bucket into the coal, turn it up, lift it, and then they would tip it onto the truck. It always fascinated me how these big machines, the booms were moved by what's called hydraulic cylinders, and how powerful these cylinders would be. They would be full of pressurized oil that would move the shafts in and out to create the movement. And one day I was standing close to one of these doing my business and a mechanic was busy working on one of these and the next thing I heard a bang and I looked around and one of these hydraulic pipes had burst. And here stood this poor soul in his overalls and he was literally drenched from head to toe. I don't think there was an inch of him that wasn't covered in hydraulic oil, and he looked absolutely miserable. And I thought to myself, this guy doesn't feel very blessed right now, does he? <laughs> but yet, the picture that we get in the text here is exactly the same. You look at it, and it says that this oil is dripping over Aaron's beard, all the way down his beard, and down his clothes. He was covered in it. So, when you look at this text, you ask, but why is, would something that seems so gross be a blessing? Well, in the Old Testament, oil is often used to refer to the anointing oil that Moses described for us in Exodus 30. And I'm going to read just two verses from 23 to you. He said, Take for yourself the finest of spices. Of flowing myrrh, 500 shekels, and of fragrant cinnamon, half as much, 250, and of fragrant cane, 250, and of cassia, 500, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, and of olive oil, a hen. You shall make of these a holy, anointing oil, a perfume mixture, the work of a perfumer. It shall be a holy, anointing oils, oil." The oil in this verse is not the type of oil that we think of. It's like a perfume. It's a special oil prepared for the anointing of the priests. It's prepared for sanctuary use. But it was also used to refresh people. You know, when you've, when you've been hot and dusty, you go and you wash your face. And for men, you put a bit of aftershave on. For women, you put some perfume on. That's the oil that they're talking about. Yeah, it's a perfumed Oil. And in verse 2 here, the psalmist compares the people dwelling together to the refreshment that comes from the fragrant oil that Moses described. It's the oil that was used to anoint the priest, Aaron. And in this text, Aaron represents all priests. And immediately, what it does for us, it brings to mind the idea of the central sanctuary. The blessing that comes from God in anointing those priests. And it creates for us the link between togetherness and the central sanctuary. fellowshipping together as saints in the church. But more than that, the idea of the anointing oil flowing down, covering his head, covering his beard, covering his garments shows us that this blessing was all-encompassing. It wasn't just a partial blessing. It was a complete blessing from above. It was pervasive to their whole being as a people. And this blessing is pervasive to the whole being of the church. All-encompassing. And as a reminder, it's good and it's pleasant. This unity amongst brothers, amongst us as believers in the church, is from God. And it sets our relationships apart as spiritual, as useful, as long lasting, as good, and as pleasant as those who are recipients of the new covenant in Christ. But there's more. The second illustration that David uses represents a miracle of unity. Something that's virtually impossible horizontally. And we've seen in the last year and a half alone that true unity is virtually impossible on a horizontal basis. But the blessing of the unity expressed in Psalm 133 is brought about by God. Watch this it says, It is like the dew of Hermon coming down upon the mountains of Zion. Now, again, Mount Hermon is about 3,000 meters high. It's far in the northern parts of the land of Israel. It sits right on the border between Palestine and Lebanon. And it's in an area that's known for a lot of moisture in the air, a lot of rain, a lot of dew, and in the colder seasons there's a lot of snow. And that's where the Jordan River gets its water. It's a countryside that's lush. It's a countryside that's green. It's a countryside that's filled with prosperity, with well-being. G.A. Smith, in his book on historical geography, says this. He says, The dew of Syrian nights is so excessive, on many mornings it looks as if there's been heavy rain. So the dew of Mount Hermon was a lot. Ezekiel 27.5 says... They have made all your planks of fir trees from Sinir. They have taken cedar from Lebanon to make a mast for you. And we know that Sinir was the ancient Amorite name for Mount Hermon. Much rich, lush, green vegetation. It's a picture of something that's good and that's pleasant, not so. We're reminded of the same thing in Psalm 23. When David speaking of Yahweh as his shepherd, says in verse one to three, he says, Yahweh is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters, he restores my soul. And again, there's for us this beautiful picture of well being, of refreshment, prosperity, and restoration. Not so. Dew in Palestine was a symbol of of refreshment of revigoration uh, invigoration of quickening and the psalmist here compares the influence of brotherly unity upon a nation to the effect that dew has upon vegetation it gives life it gives energy such dwelling together of the brothers draws fresh ener- energy into the life of a community In social aspects, in religious aspects, everything is revived, it's refreshed, and it's quickened. But the problem with this text lies in the fact that this is not the picture of Palestine. Palestine itself is dry, it's arid, it's brown, it's dusty. There's very, very little rain, especially during the months of April through to October. They get virtually zero rain Sometimes the only water they got was from the odd dew that came, but even that was scarce. So when you read this text, it's almost like a sense of relief that in this dry and desert land, we read in Psalm 133 that the dew of Mount Hermon soothes and refreshes the land as it comes down on Mount Zion. And in doing so, Jerusalem, which we've now already established, is the link for us as the center of worship, Jerusalem is soothed and refreshed. But the only problem with this is that the dew of Mount Hermon, remember we're not talking about rain clouds and storms, which in any case doesn't come from the north. Any rain and storms that come to Jerusalem come from the east, from the Mediterranean. So when it says that the dew of Mount Hermon comes down upon Mount Zion, that is something that is impossible. The minute the sun comes up, any moisture in the air is burnt away over Palestine. They're 200 kilometers apart, Mount Zion and Mount Hermon. If any moisture is to travel south, it just gets evaporated and the land remains dry and barren. So what do we do with this text? How do we understand this text? Because it creates for us a dilemma. And it was fascinating to me as I studied this text to see the vast array of commentators trying to use uh, linguistics to, to try and explain away this dilemma for us. They try and use scientific jargon to try and make sense of what's happened. They try and explain something that's obviously impossible. To happen. But I came across a commentator who made a point, and I think he hit it right on the mark when he said, and I quote The second illustration concerning the dew is a simile with positive overtones of divinely sent refreshment. And friends, this is the key for us. For this to happen, for the dew of Mount Hermon to settle on Mount Zion, 200 kilometers away, To bring prosperity, refreshment, well-being to Jerusalem would be something that's easy for God to do. It's something that only God could do. It's a miracle by the providence of God. Do you get that? Watch with me. Psalm 135, verse 6 and 7 says, Whatever the Lord pleases, He does. In heaven and in earth, in the seas and in all the deeps, he causes the vapors to ascend from the ends of the earth. Jeremiah 10 verse 13, when he utters his voice, there is tumult of waters in the heavens, and he causes the clouds to ascend from the ends of the earth. So I want to say it again, friends. For the dew of Mount Hermon to fall on Mount Zion and to bring prosperity and prosperity and, and And blessing and refreshment to Jerusalem would be something that's easy for God to do. It's a miracle. It's only possible through the providence of God. And for us today, as we read this text, this is exactly the image that he wants to leave with us. True unity amongst believers. True unity in the church is something that's impossible unless it is done through God. Unless God, by His providence, brings unity. The unity of the family of God's people, the church, is a God-made miracle. And it's something that comes down from heaven and brings refreshment upon the church. And again, I want to say When you think of dew, when you walk out in the morning and there's been dew, it's everywhere. It covers everything. It's all-encompassing. And that blessing that God brings through unity on the church is pervasive to the whole being of the church. A wonderful blessing. So we've seen the prize of unity and that it's good and that it's pleasant. We've seen the providence of unity and that it's something that's divinely produced by God. And then we find the third surety. It's called the promise of unity, and it comes in the end of verse 3. It says, For there the Lord commanded the blessing, life forever. And a key word for us as we look at this text is the word there. Now in, in the psalm, it's referring to Jerusalem. It's referring to Mount Zion, the place of the sanctuary, the place of the temple, the place where the people dwell together to worship their God together, it's the place where unity amongst the people would be most noticeable. From Zion, where the God of the ancient Israelites dwelled, the people dwelt together, and it's there that they sought blessing. The word's baraka in, in Hebrew. It's a powerful word in the Hebrew language. It's one that reverberates throughout pages of Scripture. And as you look up that word, you you will find Scripture after Scripture after Scripture. I'll give you two. God says to Abram in Genesis 12.3, In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. That word, Baraka. After Jacob's long and incredible night of wrestling with the angels, we read in Genesis 32.29, it says, And there he blessed him. It's the same word, Baraka. The oil and the dew are symbols of blessing. They're symbols that celebrate the goodness and the pleasantness of those who dwell together. But the interesting verb that I want you to see is that it says, he commands. It's the same word used in Leviticus 25:21, which says, then I will so order my blessing for you in the sixth year, that I will bring forth crops for three years. Deuteronomy 28.8, when Moses says, Yahweh will command the blessing upon you in your barns and in all that you put your hand to. Friends, the idea here is that God commands that blessing to come. He orders that blessing. And he does so in response to the people's faithfulness to his covenant. And then at the end of that, we see there the blessing and the promise of that blessing is life forever. I don't want to venture to say that this perhaps doesn't have as its main idea eternal life or immortality as as we would think. But the emphasis of this psalm is that it brings a sense of perpetuity, an ongoing blessing, ongoing life ongoing regeneration. Some of you may have been, or I'm sure you all know where Namibia is. Some of you may have been to Namibia. I was recently reading a magazine, a travel magazine, ranked Namibia as one of the uh, best travel destinations in the world today. Um, And simply because of its incredible natural beauty. And some of that Natural beauty lies in these stark, arid, desert environments of the Namib Desert. It's, a, it's just a magnificent place. But some time ago, even as short as last year, some of you will remember, the abnormally warm seas produced some of the greatest rainfall figures that Namibia has had in decades. They had rained beyond what many of them ever experienced in their lifetime. And I was born in Namibia, so I, I, I follow it quite closely whenever they get rain. And um, it was just astounding to me how these how these barren, dry, uh, brown countrysides turned in a short space of time into this beautiful, lush, green place. You can go and Google it. You'll see many of the before and after photos. It's just an incredible, incredible thing to see. And when we look at this verse, this when it says... It brings life forever. We get the same idea from this psalm. It's a sense of new life. It's a sense of life that God promises in the context of unity. But not just new life. It's it's like perpetuity. It's life that's ongoing. It's, It's an energizing that keeps going and keeps going. But once again, the important thing to note and to remember is that it's God who brings that life. It's God who is faithful to his promises. Psalm 147 is a psalm of praise for Jerusalem's restoration, for Jerusalem's prosperity. And in it, the psalmist gives praise and thanksgiving to God as the one, in verse 8 that says, who covers the heavens with clouds, who provides the rain for the earth, and who makes grass to grow on the mountains. Zechariah 10.1 says, Ask rain from the Lord at the time of the spring rain, the Lord who makes the storm clouds, and he will give them showers of rain, vegetation in the field to each man. And I want you to notice all the verbs there. It says, he who covers, he who provides, he who makes, he who gives. Friends, where there's unity, God bestows his blessing. Where there's unity, God gives life. For us today, the place where God commands his blessing is in the church. The place where God commands his blessing is where people have unity in the body of Christ. Where there's a togetherness that is same as that of a family where there's unity to worship the God of heaven. You ask, why is this relevant to us today? Well, John Calvin wrote this. He said, God commands his blessing where peace is cultivated. God doesn't command a blessing upon a church where there's division and there's strife, where there's gossip, where there's fighting. Friends, he sends his gospel blessing upon those congregations that have humbled themselves, that have repented of their sin, that love and serve each other, that are united to one another. But that doesn't just happen by itself. Some graduates at Columbia University in the United States, they they got together and they did a study on how members of various sections of 11 major symphony orchestras Perceived each other. What did they think of each other? Like some interesting results came out of there. The percussionists, those are the folks who play the drums, like this gentleman here. They were viewed as insensitive, unintelligent, and hard of hearing. Yet fun-loving. String players were seen as arrogant, stuffy, and unathletic. Any string players here? (laughs) The orchestra members overwhelmingly chose loud as the primary adjective to describe the brass players. Any brass players here? He's not here. Woodwind players seem to be held in the highest esteem, described as quiet and meticulous, even though a bit egotistical. <laughs> any, any woodwind plays? There we go. <laughs> I think these findings are very interesting, to say the least. And when you consider such a, a wide variety of di- divergent personalities coming together, you wonder to yourself how it's even possible that they can make beautiful music together. In fact, those of you who've ever been to a symphony will know that in the time leading up to the symphony, uh, every musician is there on stage, they're doing their own thing, they're tuning their instruments, they're practicing, and it just sounds awful. It's just like this cacophony of noise that makes no sense and is quite unpleasant to the ear. There's no order, there's no tune, and then in steps... The conductor. It's a beautiful picture. And in that moment, irrespective of how different they are, when he lifts his hand, they start to make beautiful music together. Not so. Just incredible. Under his guidance, under his leadership, he binds them together and they just play this beautiful music. Friends, this psalm describes for us the descent of blessing from God, which binds the church together in a covenantal fashion to be beautiful together. It's a supernatural oneness that's in Christ and it's orchestrated and conducted, if you would, by the Holy Spirit. And in that, he breaks down all dividing walls amongst people. He brings about a a togetherness that's delightful, that's enriching, and that brings a unity to his people that's good and that's pleasant. So I ask you again, is that unity present in your life, in your relationships, in your church? Of course it is. Do you seek such beautiful unity in your church? Is it something that is important to you? Are you willing to work towards God given unity? So the question asks if it is, if so, then where do you start? What's the first step you should take? Does the key to beautiful music being made in the orchestra lie in addressing all those different divergent personalities so that they all become the same, that they think the same, they act the same, they do the same thing, getting them all to to change who they are to be the same? I don't think so. Does true unity in the church depend on repentance and forgiveness and a change of heart of people in the church? Friends, the key to the orchestra is the unifying impact and the influence of the conductor. The key for us in the church is John 17:22 that says, and this is Jesus praying to his Father in heaven, and he says, The glory which you have given me, I have given to them. That they may be one just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity. Repentance, forgiveness, they are good, they're very necessary parts of church life. But the whole process starts with you being united to God in Christ. The whole process starts with you being redeemed through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. As Christ hung on the cross, he paid the penalty for the sins of the world and for those whom the Father chose for salvation. And as he died and as he was resurrected, that vertical relationship between true believers and their Father in heaven was made possible. The blessing of unity with him was poured down upon us as believers through Christ. And unity with him was made possible first. And it was made possible for all eternity. Friends, it's only in Christ that there is true life and that there's life forever. And it's only in Christ where true unity in the church is even possible. Go back to John 17, 23, and it says, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you have loved me. Friends, I want to ask you, have you been reconciled today with Christ? Have you been united with God through Christ Jesus today? If not, then I urge you to reach out, to call out to Christ, even in your desperation right now, to be united with God through Christ and receive by faith the salvation that he has for you. You need this to spend all eternity in glory with Christ. But we also need that in the church because through the church the world will know and believe in Christ Jesus And His redeeming work. It's good. It's pleasant. It's wonderful for us to dwell together as brothers and sisters in church. God made it possible. And he blesses that. As we do that, the world will see. And they will believe in Christ and his redeeming work. This is part of the Great Commission. This is what we are called to as the church. It's a very serious thing. Now, you may ask yourself the question, why would it be necessary for us to guard against something? Because that's what we've got to do. We've got to guard that unity. We've got to fight for it. Now I want to remind you and take you back to those examples I gave at the beginning. There's Cain and Abel. There's Joseph and his brothers, there's Abram and Lot, and there are many. The truth is that we are fallen creatures. Paul says, even when reconciled to God in Christ, he still carries around with him, in Romans 7:24, "A body of this death." Those who are born again, we've continually fight sin in our lives. We continually fight the flesh that wants to destroy, that wants to break unity, that wants to sin. And we continuously work with the Spirit of God to sanctify us, to become more and more like Christ. As true believers, we need to be vigilant of the sin in our life and stand against it. Psalm 51.3 says, I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. But the beautiful part of that same psalm, David asking God, his God to renew his mind and to give him his Holy Spirit. Psalm 51.10 says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. God heard that prayer. God renewed David's heart. David put away his sin. God renewed David's mind and gave him the Holy Spirit. So this morning I charge you, Living Hope Church, keep short accounts with each other. Obey His word. Fear God. Submit to Christ's rule in your life. Surrender to Him. And the Holy Spirit will conduct your church. He will bind you together in a unity that will stand as a testimony of who Christ is and what He does for us. Verse 13, David says, Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will be converted to you. This is our call in Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are so gracious to us, O oh God. Thank you that you are gracious to us according to your loving kindness, that according to your greatness and your compassion, you've blotted out our transgressions through the atoning work of Christ on the cross. Thank you that you've washed us thoroughly from our iniquities, that you've cleansed us from our sins. We pray that you would continuously work in us by your Spirit to sanctify us, creating in us a clean heart and renewing within us a steadfast spirit. Father, thank you that you've given to us the glory which you gave to Christ so that as a church we may be one, united as you are united United as you are united in the Trinity, holy and indivisible. Thank you that in Christ your spirit is in us, and because of that we may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent Christ and loved them even as you loved him. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.